This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. For many, black and white, that flag was a reminder of systemic oppression and racial subjugation. We see that now. Removing the flag from this state's capital would not be an act of political correctness. It would not be an insult to the valor of Confederate soldiers. It would simply be an acknowledgement that the cause for which they fought, the cause of slavery, was wrong. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And that was President Barack Obama, a.k.a. Preacher in Chief. Okay, It's Barack Jaquan Hussein Obama. Thank you very much. Anyway, you know what? I was was almost in tears. That was President Obama. He was um, eulogizing the death of South Carolina uh, State Senator and Pastor Clementa uh, um, Pickney. I was watching that, and President Obama, he actually broke out into song at one point. He started singing Amazing Grace. He was rapping? No, no, no. He just an old, I want to say an old Negro spiritual, but that song was written by a white man, an abolitionist, actually. Richard so, Bellazel wrote it? No, no. A, a, <laughs> Stanley, this is serious. You need to stop throwing me off. Okay, so, um, guys, I do encourage everyone to watch that full speech. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I saw it's it. It's really good. It's really, it's really good. Um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. the listeners. I like, also saw when he was singing and rapping. Grace. <laughs> he was not rapping. He wasn't rapping. But um, what he was doing, he was talking about um, the deaths of the nine African-Americans who were mm-hmm. shot at Emanuel AME Church on June 17th. Of course, we know it was by a racist white man we've mm-hmm. all come to know as Dylan Roof who apparently after he shot up the church um, was picked up and was walked out by police officers wearing a bulletproof vest. And then they treated him to Burger King because that's how we treat. I didn't know that. Yeah, they took him to Burger King. The cops paid for it because he was hungry. Bulletproof vest in the procedure. Mm -hmm. Burger King, not not. so much. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I mean, talk about a slap in the face. Do you think they gave Brie Burger King after she she, um, brought the flag down? Yeah, so then... If Stanley doesn't keep jumping my segment. She's stabbing me. She's stabbing me. I wish I was close enough to stab him. So then, um, that's true. And uh, another part of uh, President Obama's speech that he talked about was the Confederate flag. Stanley Mm -hmm. was just making a reference to that. And the thing is with the Confederate flag, it's been on... on the uh, South Carolina State House since 1961, mm-hmm. that's over 40 years, and it was actually put there in 1961 to mark the 100th year anniversary of the Civil War. So Southerners were like, you know, they, they feel a lot of quote-unquote pride towards the Civil War and the fact that their state succeeded so that they can continue to defend the institution of slavery. <coughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, no, that's, that, that's basically what it is. They mm-hmm. should say it's yeah. a part of our heritage, and, you know, we had really good Confederate fighters who were fighting for slavery. But who wants to like be like, hey, let's celebrate the fact that we committed treason so that we could own people right. and then we got our behinds handed to us well, and go ahead, Jay, I I'm think sorry. part of it is that when, you know, when the war ended, um and the South was re you know, reunionized, um, the like these southern states that are the most racist states were left, you know, they were pretty well off considering they had mm-hmm. like a lot of, you know, financially they were well off and mm-hmm. they became some of the poorest 
states in the union. Yeah. Um, and they really held on with like a death grip to this sort of idea of, oh, well, this is what we were. You know, this mm-hmm. is maybe what we are now, but this is what we were then. And so they never really got over that. You know, they're still they're kind of sore losers, I guess, in that mm-hmm. way. Um, and so to this day, they still hold on to that. It's like it's part of this really racist cultural tradition it was also it's also like a it's social psychology too like yeah the, the south before the civil war was ending it was it was the bomb. like they they focused on having a very strong patriarchal uh society that you know focused on pride and focused on 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 dignity and 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 southern principles and you know you have somebody like uh you have well, the sound just changed a lot. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> then you have the Civil War, and you have uh, a, you know you you have this massive shift in the dynamics, and it becomes a class struggle. You know, you have new members who are now apparently supposed to be equal to you, who you know have to take the same level of uh, property and land that you need to do. It was it was a massive shock, and go figure, Reconstruction was a mess. Right. You have you have a, a historical precedence in, in noting that we did not do a good enough job in really setting up federal policy to make sure that there is some protection or some civil rights for the folks who just came in right. into the system because directly after uh directly after the uh, the civil war we have the slaughterhouse cases we don't have any protections for for African Americans with the 14th amendment and we didn't have any kind of uh reparations until the 60s with the civil rights movement right and during the Civil Rights Movement, that's when the Confederate flag actually came back into prominence. It was used here and there, yeah. but white people and white Southerners particularly were using it as a symbol of white resistance to the Civil Rights Movement as well to the end of segregation. Mm-hmm. So now we have, you know, fast forward 40 years later, um, we have a black woman who literally climbed the pole to pull the flag down. We have Republican Governor Nikki Haley calling out to um, finally take this flag down, uh, Walmart eBay, a number of um, stores have said that we're no longer going to sell this because think about it. I mean, let's think about it in this light. Would you ever see the Nazi flag being sold or or just Mm -hmm. held over a state capital in the U.S. or in Germany? No, it would be completely disrespectful. Right. And illegal. And illegal. (laughs) Illegal in Germany. And I think that that's a big part of it. And something that we forget, you know, with with Germany, I mean, there was some kind of resolution, certainly, mm-hmm. you know, for Jews, there was like the Nuremberg trials and there was a, a set, you know, there were people that were convicted for these acts of extreme racism and, you know, genocide. Um, and we never really had any kind of resolution like that in this country where people were convicted for the acts that they committed and for owning slaves and for whatever. And so that's why I think this continues where, you know, in Germany, you would never see right. a swastika hanging up. You would be arrested if you held, you know, hung one up outside your house or something like well, that. Right. Why don't well, black people that, just stop being bad? I mean, well, that's never the case. But I, um, before we continue the conversation... <clears throat> uh, we do actually have a very special guest on the line with us who I will introduce momentarily, and he's going to help us continue the conversation about the Confederate flag debate. We'll also be talking about the N-word. You know, Obama recently used the N-word. And what this all sort of means about racism in 2015, is this finally showing some people that, hey, it exists, or people saying, well, this is progress. If this is as bad as it gets, at least someone's getting lynched. Um, so Wait, that's the, I'm saying that's the I'm saying that could be the argument there or maybe not. So we have do we? Okay, good, perfect. So we have on the line with us Nicholas 
Power, who I continue to say Professor Power because I actually took his class, one of his African-American studies classes in, um, at SUNY Westbury. I did as well. Yes, but he is the author of The Ground Below Zero, 9-11 to Burning Man. He also wrote New Orleans to Defar and Haiti to Occupy Wall Street. He's an associate professor of English at SUNY Westbury, which is in Long Island. And he, his writings appear in The Village Voice and Alternate. So you guys can check him out there. Yes. And before we finalize this introduction, I want to say that the first paper I handed in to him for his class, he gave, gave it back to me as a C- minus, and it says, beautiful BS, no context. Oh. <laughs> yes, put Stanley in his place. Good morning. Good. Good morning, Nick, a.k.a. Professor Power. Hey, good morning. Uh, Stanley, I'll definitely go back and regrade your paper. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. I probably deserved worse than that, so it's totally cool. Stanley's a master BSer, okay? Yes. He really yes. is. He is. I'm glad you called him out on that crap. That yeah. hurt. There's my unanimous there. consensus on that. I saw the talent even then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> BS my way through. So, words. so Nick, we started the conversation. Um, we're talking so about what calling him Nick, right? Yeah. It's so yeah. hard. It's so hard for us. That's what she said. Pause. <laughs> we still. I don't know. In my mind, I just see you as Professor Power. But um, we started the conversation about the Confederate flag, um, that debate, the controversy, and of course, um, you know, we'll continue later on in the segment and talk about the N word. But I kind of wanted to start off with you by asking: Can you sort of help us define what is the meaning behind? the Confederate flag. For me, and for many Americans, it's just remnant of white supremacy, but you know, other people don't have that understanding. There was actually a pro-Confederate flag rally Saturday morning in South Carolina. So what what's like the truth behind it? If you've ever seen a child with a security blanket, and they hold on to it for security, because they're afraid of the dark, or they're afraid of the shadows, or afraid of what's in their room, that on an individual example, is, to me, what happens with the South and its relationship to the Confederate flag. It holds on to it like a security blanket because the world outside is changing. The United States is becoming more diverse. Yeah. People of color are having more power within the South. And so those who see their white identity as being threatened mm. hold on to the Confederate flag and they really hold on to an illusion or even a hallucination of the present. They're not really living in the same world with everyone else. They clutch onto the flag the same way that a child clutches onto a security blanket because they're afraid of giving up power or they're afraid of having that power taken from them. So on one level, on a historical level, yes, the flag is intimately connected with the blood of the Civil War, with the blood of the civil rights activists who were killed. And it is also connected on another level to the fear of what's happening in the present. So they hold on to it like a security blanket. So when I look at that flag and I look at, you know, and I've been to the South and I've walked into homes, and at some level, some people, there's like a spectrum. So that's the other thing. There's like a spectrum. Some folks I go and I'm at their homes and, you know, we're eating and, and having a good conversation, but they have a Confederate flag hanging from the wall or hanging outside their home. And they are either forcing themselves to be oblivious or are not really aware of what a contradiction it is to have a person of right. color in your home and having that flag there. Right. So some, I think it really means just an antique, right. but I think for some, 
It's a security blanket. I have a question for you. I, I lived in the South briefly in 2008 when I was working for the Obama campaign, and uh, you know, I talked to a lot of people in Northern Virginia, Southern Virginia, West Virginia, and you know, one of the things that I constantly see is that you know they will never claim that they're racist. And in some cases, individually, they've, you know, I'm a, I'm a person of color myself. And, you know, when I talk to them, you know, they never gave me any kind of assumption to believe that, you know, they were they were threatening my safety. But I could tell there was like a weird, uh, you know, there was always that tension. And one of the things that, you know, I listen to, in, you know, in right wing radio or even in the uh, uh, in, in, in Facebook and in, in online media or even in general conversations that racism no longer exists. It's not something that's quantifiable because the country is becoming more diverse. And I don't, I don't personally believe that's that, that 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 to be true. I think the new racism is this strange absence of talking about racism. And I think what we're seeing now is that um, the tension being built up based on that kind of like reality. But what what is your take on this level of racism or or this new racism that 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 has kind of like come up in 2015? Yes, that is an inc- that's a very vivid and accurate. Um, portrait that you just said about the new racism. And there's a really good book called Racism Without Racists. And what it talks about is how the language of racism has shifted into colorblind view so that we don't see race. And in not seeing racism, what we're refusing to see is the unequal power dynamics between the many people who are poor and those who are middle class and higher, between people who are minorities and the majority. And so in refusing to see the unequal power dynamic between them and saying, well, you know, we're colorblind, it's actually a way of keeping the status quo frozen in place and then actually saying that those who bring up racism as a topic for social justice conversation, they're the racist because they're bringing up race and I'm colorblind. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a weird reverse judo strategy where you blame the people who are actually suffering from the oppression for bringing it up in the first place. And so that's colorblind racism as a way of whitewashing uh, the reality of unequal power dynamics in society. Guys, if you're just tuning in, we have on the line with us Professor Nicholas Power from SUNY Old Westbury. He's also an author. You can find his writings on The Village Voice and Alternate. Um, and we're talking about racism 2015, a Confederate flag, the N-word. If you want to call in because you have a comment or a question, the number is 212-650-6903. You can also tweet <laughs> us at BHERD. Underscore radio. Thank you, Stanley. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Nick, just getting back to that a little bit. Um, what you made that there was I know I saw this week there was a really interesting kind of graphic on social media um, that people were sharing where it was like a political cartoon and on top it showed uh, the Confederate fa- flag and it said racism in the South and on the bottom it showed sort of a um, a gate right like a, a fence and it said racism in the North and mm-hmm. it showed sort of the separation between white communities and black communities um, and you know wealthier communities and poorer communities and it, it made the point that yes okay we don't have the Confederate flag hanging above the state building in New York mm-hmm. State right I mean and people would flip out if we did. Yeah. However, racism is definitely alive and well. It's not to say that just because it's not as blatant and hanging over our, our government buildings, it doesn't exist here. And it does in more systemic, maybe less obvious ways that can sometimes delude people in thinking that it's not about race when it absolutely is. Perfect example of that is there's a highway where they made the tunnel a certain height so buses couldn't get through it because they didn't want black people going to the mm-hmm. suburbs. New York City, oh. maybe. Thanks, Robert Moses. Wow. <laughs> For all that. Oh. For all you've done for us. Yeah. <laughs> Professor Power? Yeah, when you say that, there was a, 
a friend of mine who came up north, uh, she was from the South, a woman of color, and we were riding the subway, and she turned to me and she said, you know, racism in the north is like the subway. It runs underground. And what I've experienced about language and power, especially in New York City, is that a lot of the racial tensions, because it's impolite or not politically correct uh, for people to be openly racist, what they do is they tuck it under the language of class. So the class language then becomes a replacement for racist language. And so it's interesting to hear the language in New York um, that... I would say just some of the terms like ratchet, hood, ghetto, all of these are anomaly class terms, but they have racial undertones. And I think it's the undertone that really tells you the truth of how people feel, but they're afraid to be openly racist, so they'll keep it on a class level. And it's persistent also in our news media, too. I mean, that it, our news is very much centered in the Northeast, and that language, that, that, that kind of colored light language, is acclimated up here. Yeah. And it, it persists in all of America. It persists from Fox News all the way down right. to California. I think one of the biggest racially coded words that we continue to hear perpetuated in media and even by politicians is hmm. thug. And it's like, why don't we ever hear that term right. affiliated with um, um, white people or white groups of people who commit in some type of criminal activity? Right. But it's like we're so quick to hear, you know, or see the word thug on the front page of the New York Post when it comes to like a, a, a riot quote unquote um, involving you know protesters of something of that nature but um, we do have to take a quick break but when we come back we're going to talk more about racism in 2015 and you know Professor Power you also you mentioned something very very interesting you talked about how it's no longer you know you don't have to say you know you don't have people don't use the n-word because they're being polite right Um, but racism comes out and it manifests in other different types of forms well President Obama basically said that earlier this week or last week actually and he got into a lot of trouble because he used the n-word but we're going to talk about that when we come back this is let your voice be heard and we are back this is let your voice be heard Right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, where we Snapchat on the breaks. Stanley, you just like ruined the song. Blessings on blessings on blessings. blessings. You, you don't need this. I mean, I love that part and I love when that I song, but now when you sing it. Walking down the block. Blessings on blessings. Say the N-word on drops. Okay. Speaking oh. of saying the N-words on drops, that actually leads us to the next part of the conversation. If you're just tuning in, um, I'm Selena. I'm here with Stanley, Jackie, and hey. Carlos. Carlitos. Hello. Carlitos Danger. <laughs> and um, we're talking about racism in 2015. Of course, there's this big controversy over the Confederate flag. And obviously, it just needs to come down. I think most people, most politicians, even Republican ones, are finally vocalizing that, you know, it's time for it to come down. And we're finally seeing some progress. Whoa, guys. Racism is bad. <laughs> it's apparently, Whoa, the Confederate flag guys. is a symbol of racism no. in this country. Who would have known? Who would have known? Who would have thought that? The only person that hasn't cut up is Donald Trump, but we'll give him some time. I think the blacks <laughs> are getting too comfortable because they're always blaming people for racism now. Yeah. I mean, so what if we enslave black people for like 400 years and then Jim Crow? <laughs> it's still the black fault. Well, yeah, the because... The blacks fault. Have Actually, you heard... Blacks are the real racists because they always bring up racism in every conversation. Yes, have you All heard right? Young Thug? That is racist, okay? I don't know what he's saying, but it's <laughs> racism. We should ban rap. We? Yes, and black 
oh, wait, I can't say that because I'm not racist. I forgot. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't. Well, um, we also have on the line with us Professor Nick Powers from SUNY All Westbury. He's also an author of books. And <laughs> <laughs> what else would he be an author of? <laughs> well, uh, he write, uh, he's all, you can find his writings in um, places like The Village Voice. Village Voice. <laughs> thank you for that sound effect, Stanley. Movie. This is my movie voice. Right. So thank you, but no thank you. Um, We're moving along. We're going to talk about the N-word because apparently everyone Neighbors? was up in arm. No, the N-word. The racial slur. Say it, Selena. Do you want to get fined? I don't know what our parameters are when it comes to FCC. I'm just going to call it the N-word. Maybe if you pay attention to Professor Powers' class, Selena, <laughs> you, would, you would have known. I, I, I got an A, and I do want to thank you. Oh. I did get an A. I got an A minus, and that I was late every day. See? That's why, again, I am better. But it's let's neither here nor there. Um, we're going to talk about the N-word. You guys know what I mean when I say the N-word. And if you want to call in, you can do so, but don't actually say the word, okay? The number is 212-650-6903, and we'll get to the callers and just... One second. That's what, yes. Okay. So, <laughs> Professor, no, not Professor, President Obama. Oh. He was talking. He was He was a professor at one Obama point. At one point. <laughs> yes. Liberals. Professor in chief. <laughs> professor in chief, preacher in chief, he's everything. So, he was talking about racism in a very, I would say, candid way. Yeah. And he used the N-word. The quote is, he said, so, racism, we are not cured of it. And it's not just a matter of it being polite not to say that in public, that's not the measure of whether racism still exists or not. You're welcome. It's not just a matter of overt discrimination. Societies don't overnight completely erase everything that happened 200 to 300 years prior. Can I please comment on that first? Sure. Okay. I When he said that, I, I had to clap my hands in unison because it's so true. And I think I'm, I've been around like enough people where I've experienced lots of microaggressions. And I remember when I was 17 years old, and there, there was this family in Park Slope helping me with my resume so I could apply for college. And they had watermelon. And they were like, oh, Stanley, do you want watermelon? And I was like, no, I don't like watermelon. And they were like, what? Really? <laughs> you don't like watermelon? And I was like, yeah, what's the big deal? But Stanley, where are you from? Aren't you from like the hood? You don't like watermelon, no. Stanley? And like they were the sweetest people. But like that was very. But it was like, those Mike, and that was the point that he was making, yeah. right? Was that it's not just a matter of overtly making. I mean, that's a pretty overt. But I love fried chicken, but, so screw but you guys. it's not just a matter of right, like hanging the um, Confederate flag over a building. Again, it's about these like day to day interactions that we mm-hmm. have with people where we use very maybe coded language, but we, you know, what we're saying, while it might be quote-unquote polite, means something that is really deep-rooted in something much worse. Right, and that's no what we're exactly. what we're dealing with today. <laughs> um, Nick, I want to get your reaction. When when Obama dropped the N-word, were you, like, all out, like, un- unarmed and uh, upset and offended? I was... I was, uh, I was, I think, afraid for him mm. because when he's dropping a racial slur, and that is the king and queen of racial slurs, right? Like that has the most electricity in it. Then obviously he's taking a political risk because here he is, the first black president, um, one of the most powerful people on the planet, and he's also at the top of the class hierarchy. Like he represents capitalism the world. And so for him to drop that racial slur 
is obviously taking a risk because it's such a contrast to his position as the president of the United States. It's something that people feel more comfortable hearing out of Drake, out of Jay-Z. Yeah. And those are exactly, like, it's actually in a way his contrast against to the scary black rapper. Yeah. Hmm. But, right? I mean, Drake isn't a scary black rapper, let's be honest, guys. Drake is my Jewish boyfriend. And that when, he, when he was campaigning, he said that voting for a black man as president is not a check that you can cash for white America. You can't buy racial recon- mm-hmm. recon- uh, reconciliation yeah. on the cheap. You can't get forgiveness just simply by voting for a black mm-hmm. president. And ironically... And- Oh, sorry. Sorry, not not to cut you off, but ironically, that's kind of like what happened afterwards. You know, there was this moment where everybody thought we fixed racism. Yeah, that's exactly what happened afterwards. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, No, continue, continue. No, so just that, and then, and so I felt both. I felt kind of scared for him because I was like, "Oh, he's taking risks." But also, I did disagree with him. I was like, saying racial slurs in public, Mm -hmm. not saying them, is actually a big step because I remember hearing stories from my parents. and from older people of color, how they would be called out of their name all the time in public. And it was a way of humiliating you in daylight on the street to tell you what your place was all the time. Mm-hmm. And so to have that uh, tide of racial slurs being pulled back from the public sphere, pulled back from the streets and sidewalks, was actually a very big victory. But there is other levels of consciousness. You've got the subconscious, the unconscious, and I think that's where... Uh, Projects like Harvard Implicit, uh, Project Implicit, where people are tested on their unconscious racial bias, really show that even after people pulled back the racial slurs from public, there is a whole deep ocean of bigotry right underneath the waterline. Mm -hmm. And that bigotry is why people of color don't get called back for job interviews. Uh, People get redlined. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also why police are more apt to shoot down innocent black men and women. So there's this whole sea of, of... of bigotry, that even though we don't say it, it's right there. So it was a victory, but there's still so much more to go. There definitely is. I know we have on the line with us Miss Deborah, who would like to let her voice be heard on the issue. Good morning, Miss Deborah. Hi, how are you? I thought that it was in its proper context when he mentioned it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as if he was Jay-Z or whomever else you were talking about, and he was just sitting there kicking it with somebody. He was basically letting you know what your professor just said. Pete, there's more than one way to call you an end. And I hate that, but I have, I'm going to do it because you're, we're on the air. Because, you know, this whole thing, like, is such a bad thing. You know, when people walk up on you and they ask you for your license and they shoot you anyway, there's so many ways in which we are treated. I mean, you might not get a job due to the fact that someone doesn't like your name or your last name is not what they consider American. So, I mean, I don't understand. First of all, he didn't get into trouble. We have to be real clear about some of the things that we say, because they talk about him every day, and they don't use the N-word. We might have lost Miss Deborah um, on the line, but she made some really poignant points yeah, about the N word and how it was used within context, which is yeah. why I was sort of re- I agree with re- Miss re- Deborah relieved oh. um, when he, he right. said, it. "I do understand Nick's point that he made." Yeah. Um, but I was sort of like, "Let's just be clear right. about it." But she didn't. But she's right about one thing: he didn't get into trouble. 
the media just did what he actually said the media would do, which is they're going to inflate it and they're going to take it out of context and they're going to, you know, just focus on the fact that he said the N word. Right. That entire conversation in the in that podcast was about his family life. Yeah. He I mean, the whole conversation that he was having, it was two days after the shooting right. in Charleston. And they were talking about um, what that shooting was based on from which was you know based out of racism and they were talking about the flag and yeah the context that he used it in was very different right than what the media is is saying that you know they all headlines are saying obama used the n-word which he did but the context of that conversation is very important and of course as he you know as he predicted rightfully the context was completely right. well, well. Well, speaking of that, and I'm going to get uh, Professor Power back into the conversation, but I want to bring up this point. Um, so Obama used the N-word, and then Dr. Cornell West used the N-word in a very different way. And he he said that Obama, and I quote, is the first N-word-ized president. Okay, so use your imagination. He said, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys heard it, but he said it like twice on CNN. He, I wish I could just say it so you could hear the impact, but he was like, I- President Obama is the first I can be considered considered a radical leftist, but I do not respect Cornel West because he – yeah, here's the thing. I don't don't agree politically with Obama. My my politics is not aligned with with, with Barack Obama. I'm further to the left than he is. But Cornel West does not like Obama because Obama did not take into context what he was saying at all. In fact – Obama did not come in and try to invite him to the White House. Cornell West just has a petty disagreement with them. Yeah, the the exact issue is that he didn't like his seat for the inaugura- for the first right. inauguration. Right. Um, but I mean, the thing is, I found that really grossly disrespectful absolutely. towards the first African American president, calling him the N word on live TV and just doing right. it because you yourself are black. No one else would have, you know, would would be able to use it that way. Right. Um, Professor Power, w- did you see Dr. Cornell West's uh, comments on that? Yeah, what, I'm, what I've seen, uh, I've seen Cornell West over the years, uh, not personally, but, you know, just in public. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Uh-oh. Yes, Brother Omar, we, uh, Brother Omar, just hold off one second, okay? Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, continue, Professor Power. And so let me, just two points. One, on a personal level, the Cornell West has a personality of he's a habitual line crosser. Like, anytime he sees a line, where other people are like, well, maybe I won't cross that line. It's almost like he gets this like look in his eyes, and he's just like, oh, i got to jump over it. Um, so that's just something about him that you can see pretty clearly. Uh, two, when he was calling President Obama the, the N-word, uh, they, in some ways he was using it in a kind of contradictory way. One, he was actually using it not as Obama did, which was, let me state something as a political fact, et cetera, just as a, someone explaining a lesson. Cornell West was actually using it as a slur to attack his personality, right? Now, the strange thing, the reason it's a contradictory moment is that he's not using it in a white racist way. He's using it as an insult, but he is trying to use it, and I would say, a Nat Turner way. In other words, he sees himself as more far left, more radical than President Obama, and that Obama himself is actually kind of the hood ornament for capitalism and for imperialism. Mm-hmm. In other words, that Obama, President Obama, is killing innocent people with his drone attacks, etc. And so when he's attacking President Obama, he's actually using it in a Nat Turner way, saying, you're still a slave, you're still hypnotized by the system, and even worse, you're actually a manager of empire who is killing innocent people with your drone attacks overseas. So that's where Cornell West is coming from. Now, what I think is that when he's using that word, and the last thing to say is that I think it actually lowers the level and quality of conversation. 
And so I didn't like it when he used it. I kind of flinched. And I also felt that it was a desperate rhetorical move to try to up the ante on CNN uh, when really he could have just actually laid out a much more cold and factual case rather than just using name calling. Right. Agreed. Yeah, and I just wanted to make a comment about Cornell West. So I, like Professor Powers, I feel it has been extremely problematic. Um, when when you in communications, like when you're like responding to an issue or a policy, they, they always say attack the policy, not the person. Cornell West has historically attacked President Obama personally. Yeah. And so you, you should really take what he says in in context of President Obama with a grain of salt because there is a there's a very like personal issue going on over there, um, and like you, there's you a can, fine line yeah, of criticism. You don't, you don't you can question someone's like liberalism or their like their politicalism, but you don't question their blackness or their comfort around blackness. Yeah. And that's Cornel West has done that consistently. He, I just want to throw that in. I know we do have the um, brother Omar on the line. Yes, he basically well. called him an Uncle Tom. Yeah, that's all he does it all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he says that. Pro- uh, just a real quick that this is in context of uh, Michael Eric Dyson's uh, essay <laughs> on Cornel West called "The Ghost of Cornel West." where he does exactly what Stanley just said. He's talking about Cornel West's use of invective and personal insult rather than political analysis. So I think Cornel West was actually doubling down, saying, oh, you, you just wrote an essay about me getting personal on people. Well, guess what? Boom, I'm just going to drop the mic. Yeah. And that's what he did. We have Brother Omar on the line who would like to let his voice be heard. Go ahead, Brother Omar. You know, uh, good, good morning, and good morning to your panel. You know, I, I find that this, uh, this has been... Uh, 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 this has really just been uh, over- overplayed. Cornel West uh, was uh, an ally of our president until he wasn't invited to the first inaugural at the White House. So they have that history where he went out and campaigned for the man. If, if you know the history of it, go back seven years when he was buddy-buddy with him, but he has that under his car that he didn't get a personal invitation. As far as the N-word is concerned, I find it is deplorable. I don't like my children using it. My grandkids don't use it. We use the word kefa, which is a South African term. It means the same thing. But to use the N-word, the reason why I say that, read 100 Years of Lynching by uh, uh, Ralph uh, Ginsburg, where he talks about the last words that our ancestors heard was that word when they made their transition. And that's why I find it deplorable in polite society, in hip-hop, or whatever you want to give it. But we're, we're missing the point. By us using that word, how does it get someone out, out of uh, dire circumstances when they can't pay their rent? How come black women are making 67 cents to the dollar uh, compared to white men, and black men are making 77 cents to the dollar to the white man? This is what we should be talking about, economics. And as far as prejudice is concerned and racism, that's worldwide. I've been in Africa, the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, they all have their preferences. What mm-hmm. do we care? We are black Americans. We're proud. We have a black family in the White House, which we voted for twice. So let's get over it and move on and try and get all of the other stuff taken care of. Mm-hmm. And that's my humble opinion. And you know I love you, and there's nothing you can do about it. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. Thank you so Thank much, you. Brother Thank Omar. You. Maybe Brother Omar See, wrote Obama's speech. He just dropped the mic. That was <laughs> that was beautiful for one reason. And if we continue this conversation and we continue the way that things are right now with this 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 bizarre brand of racism, we're not getting anywhere. We're not actually addressing other issues. We're not addressing you know racism against Hispanics. We're not addressing issues with, with racism against Asians. We're not addressing trans issues or gay issues. We're just stuck in this place. This place that's literally just killing us and, and destroying us. Yeah, and I think Obama even 
even addressed that in his eulogy, right? Getting back to the eulogy where he talked about let's, you know, start addressing these issues because we can't survive like this any longer. We can't keep going on, you know, just and he's speaking, I, I think, in this way to America as a whole. You know, this is these are problems that haven't gone away and they're not going to go away until we address them and do something about them. And not just, you know, he always says it's, you know, we always say we have to have a conversation about race. Um, but we know, like, we, we know that there's an issue here. Let's start doing something about it. Right. No, um, I just want to say, like, pe- people always talk about conversation. Like you said, Jackie, we've had enough conversations. Let's yeah. just yeah. be active. Right. Um, Professor Power, did you want to jump in? Yeah. Um, the conversation about the conversation seems almost <laughs> endless, right? Everyone's always talking, but if you notice in history, whenever, at least in American history, when you see there's a real problem, when um, there's an economic crash, when there's a war happening, people don't talk, they don't have a conversation, they do something, there's an action plan. And so it shows me, again, how black lives matter less, because we're still talking, but we're not actually doing. There's not an actual movement, a plan, to, say, have a Marshall Plan for the inner cities where there's jobs brought in, where there's health care, where there's midnight basketball, where there's things that can be done to actually help people's lives get better. And instead of doing those things, people are just constantly talking and talking. And so whenever I hear this idea of we need to have a conversation uh, it seems like we're having a conversation about a conversation about a conversation. And at some point, there needs to be a demand for action. Right. Professor Power, actually wrapping up the segment now, but I did want to hear, um, you know, some of your closing thoughts about what is the next step? What should we all be doing to take action? Is there tangible steps? I always say that removing the Confederate flag is a very tangible step towards healing from our um, historical past of racism. By just bringing that down, is there something else that we can be advocating for or pushing for? Yeah, definitely get out into the streets. One of the reasons that Michael Slager, uh, the killer cop who shot the black man in the back as he was running away, one of the reasons he's in jail is because of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who took the streets in New York and Baltimore and Ferguson and L.A. and Oakland. And it's because people are out on the streets that the ruling class gets nervous. They get scared because things are out of their control. And when people flood the streets... Even the police can't keep them in control. So you have to be out on the streets protesting and however you want, whether it's a creative protest with puppets and art, whether it's a property destruction protest, whether it's blocking traffic, uh, whether it's going into stores and uh, having a chance. But whatever it is, um, get out into the streets. Get out of your home. Get away from the screen and actually get into the streets and rediscover your power as a movement in the streets. And that's what scares the ruling class, and that's what forces them to make reform that may actually improve people's lives. Right. Very powerful words. Professor Power, can you please let our listeners know how they can reach you and follow up on your readings in your book? Uh, If you go to uh, Google Nicholas Powers and their articles on Truth Out, there's also articles on The Independent, but also if you just Google the name Nicholas Powers, you'll see the website. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be happy to have you again. Um, I just want to give the panel some time to give some final um, closing statements. I, I agree with, with Professor Power. And, you know, to be honest, just to add on to that, you need to fight fear. 
there needs to be a huge systemic fight for fear and fear, fear of repercussions, fear against the police, fear uh, for the police. You have to fight fear that you know whites have about you know people of color. You have to fight. We there we communities of color are terrorized. That's that's just the whole truth about it. You know, people react when they're in terror, when they're when they're when they're afraid. They react in ways that are, is oftentimes unpredictable, and you know that unpredictability becomes predictable too. So you have to get out to protest. You have to get out and ha- and have your voice heard, heard out because that's the only way you can get anybody in power to react. And it's not because you know you want them to do something right. It's just to scare them. So that they know that they represent them. That's democracy. Democracy is not, is not built upon this facade that, you know, once you set, cast your vote, things are going to be okay. You know, you cast your vote because what you're doing is you're, you're, you're sharing power and you're validating that power. And if that power is not validated, then what's the point? You know, what's mass action. Definitely. Yeah, I think um – I mean, that's a fantastic point. I want to just add on it by saying that, you know, there's this idea that we have to sort of come to understanding as a country as a whole, and that will never happen. We know that that's not going to happen. And I think some decisions need to be made that the rest of the country is just going to have to catch up to in their understanding um, and their acceptance of, you know, when it comes to civil rights, I mean, we're talking about human rights, right? They're rights. They're not something that we should be voting on. Um, They should be inherent to every single person. So I think our lawmakers need to stop saying, oh, we agree, but, you know, democracy and just start taking action and start Mm -hmm. making and enacting policies that, you know, bring us there because the rest of the country can catch up. We can't wait forever. I don't think this is an us problem or everyone problem. I think this is a very particular people problem. I think it is anyone who has any kind of prejudice, it is your problem because my name is not Rachel Dolezal. I can't just choose to be white tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I am black. I've been born black. I've lived black. I will stay black. So as long as I am black, I'm not, I, I'm not changing a thing. What you can change is how you perceive me and how you treat people of color. And if you can't do that, then you know what? You can go to the same place that Confederate flag will eventually go, a museum. history um so i I just want to um add on my final thoughts are um again just to reiterate taking action and not waiting for other people to take action for us and again we applaud um brie newsom newsom who took down well hey whatever she took down the confederate flag we've been talking about it all throughout the segment but she took action and she released a statement saying that the reason why i took it down is because for the last for decades, our legislators failed to take this type of action. Yeah. And she's been commended and mm-hmm. applauded. And I think that that act of civil disobedience is reflective on what we saw Dr. King do and a number of um, iconic legends and, and some of the unnamed uh, civil rights leaders and, and people who participated in the movement. But it is up to us to take that next step. And, you know, thank God she, you know, she was arrested, but then she, she made bond. Um, thank God she didn't get shot down. I mean, if it was back in the 70s, I was thinking that she would have made it. it was but, three weeks ago. Yeah. Well, well, if it was three weeks ago, well, you know, that that's right. a good point, too. But on that note, um, I just want to say it is about progression and us taking action. We do have to go to a quick break, but when we come back, we're coming back to the news roundup right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. Got the whole world talking, everybody want to cut the legs off When you got the yams, what's 